we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, June 4th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We never to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at the $5 level at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. These days, it seems like all we're talking about is genetics. We've had shows about CRISPR. We've had shows about gene editing our our babies. We've had shows on gene editing livestock, even those personalized DNA tests we've talked about extensively. All of these discussions are basically poking at the same question. Why are we the way we are? And can we change that at all? Yeah. And then there's all these new findings that show that things that we think really define us are not written into our DNA, that these are social constructs, not something that is in our genes. I totally agree. I think we need to back up from DNA for a second because our reliance on DNA giving us the complete picture might be a little misplaced. And before you say I'm going into epigenetics, I'm not, because our guest this week has an old idea for us to get us back on track. How about we talk heredity? Because that's how we've been tackling this question for centuries, like from growing plants to how we look and behave. I mean, we all say like, oh, she has she has your eyes when we're talking about our kids at least until recently. And it helps explain some things we don't exactly expect from genetics, like mosaicism, which is where cells end up with completely different chromosomes than you would expect from the parental lineage. Yeah, for most of us, heredity is tied to genetics. And yet the story's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, and this week's guest is Carl Zimmer, and he tries to sort of disentangle the two. Because while heredity and genetics are inexplicably tied, there are subtle differences that really tell us a story, especially when we look at the history of how we've approached heredity and how that informs some modern genetics. Carl Zimmer is one of the preeminent science journalists of our time. He's an award-winning New York Times columnist and the author of 13 books about science, including Science Inc., Parasite Rex, and A Planet of Viruses. His newest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, 
The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Oh, man, I'm so jealous. You got to talk to Carl. He's one of my favorite people. Carl is one of the best and and a returning guest. You can listen to his past episode with us about the hidden world of viruses. So let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Carl Zimmer. Today's show is brought to you by Epic Reads and Invisible Ghosts. Invisible Ghosts is a heartfelt, sharply funny new novel by Robin Schneider, the author of The Beginning of Everything. It's a boy-meets-girl story with a major twist. Boy also meets girl's ghost brother. Rose and her brother Logan are pretty much inseparable. The only catch is that Logan died years ago in a tragic accident, and Rose is the only one who can see his ghost. Or so she thinks. Staying close to her brother has meant distancing herself from everyone else, but when a childhood friend moves back to town and sparks begin to fly, Rose finds it's becoming harder to choose between the boy who makes her feel alive and the brother she isn't ready to lose. Invisible Ghosts has everything you need in a perfect summer read. Swoony romance, hilarious banter, and some tear-jerkingly honest moments of truth. It's a can't-miss contemporary romance, perfect for fans of John Green and Nicola Yoon. Invisible Ghosts is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. Carl Zimmer, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. This is a quite a sweeping look at heredity, history, the you know, potentially the future, a lot of misunderstandings along the way. Why did you decide to take a deeper look at heredity now in a context of a time when we are seem to be focused on some other more specific topics? Heredity is one of those things that uh, everybody seems to know. Um, You don't need to define the word heredity when you talk to someone about it. Um, They already have a definition in their head. Uh, And yet, if you really start to drill into heredity itself, it kind of explodes. and, And you realize that it's, there's a lot of things that we assume it is that it isn't. And a lot of things that is that we didn't even realize. Um, and what heredity has meant to us has changed over the course of centuries. And so the more you explore heredity, the the, the bigger the, the space you realize it takes up in our lives. Was there a, a moment when you decided you needed to uh, delve into heredity in a in a bigger way because you obviously cover a lot of different topics in your in your regular column and you've written a number of books. When did it sort of coalesce that this topic needed to be written upon? I'd actually been looking back at some articles I had written for the New York Times and elsewhere, and uh, I was thinking, well, these seem very disparate. They're kind of all over the place. And then I thought, no, wait a minute. Actually, a lot of them have to do one way or another with heredity, Um, whether it's Neanderthal DNA or whether there are things other than genes that we can pass on to our uh, descendants. And I thought, hmm, like I I clearly uh, have this uh, obsession with heredity and I need to sort of confront it head on. And and, uh, I chose to do so by writing a book. This is a much more personal book than others you have written because you include so many details of yourself and your family, in, including your your daughters. I mean, the book starts with your your wife's pregnancies, but moreover, you you share the experience of having your own genome sequenced, and you you've spent a lot of time covering the scientists that led that project uh, around developing the first 
uh, sets of whole uh, genome sequencing and, and a number that have done it themselves. I'm wondering what you learned from having your own whole genome sequenced. Well, I learned that uh, our genomes are a lot more complicated and mysterious than we uh, assume they are. Um, we, we tend to think of our genomes as this marvelous encyclopedia. And if we could just be able to uh, get our hands on it and open up those volumes, we would see everything that we are and, and we could see uh, our whole uh, ancestry. We could, we, could, we could see how, you know, millions of years uh, of ancestors made us who we are. And Actually, it's a lot harder to do than that. It's a it's a lot harder to read, uh, and so you know you may look at um, you know variants for some disease, and lo and behold, you have some variants that raise your risk for it, and other variants that lower your risk for it, and you really don't know what to do about that. Um, and uh, if you take your genome to one group of scientists, they may say, "Well, you seem to be." Uh, having a very large uh, fraction of ancestry from Southern Europe, which in my case, I did not know at all. And, you know, started to raise some difficult, <laughs> uncomfortable conversations with the family. Like, how did this happen? But then you go to another uh, group of scientists and they use their own methods and that component kind of dwindles away. And you say, well, what just happened? And so you realize that we're really in, in the very early rough, rough stages of understanding our genomes and, and understanding how we inherit DNA and what that inheritance does for us. You paint this picture that uh, the genome that we have, too, especially in the context of heredity, isn't this static thing either, that if there isn't this, oh, here's a perfect picture of Carl's history going backwards, that it's been invaded by a number of other species and in, in ways that it's not this perfect picture. Can you talk about that a little bit about how this genome, which has been heralded in a lot of ways in, in the in the past as being this defining characteristic of who we are, is, is not quite that? Sure. I, I think part of the problem is that we have carried over really old ideas about heredity into the age of DNA sequencing. So, you know, you'll still hear people saying, uh, I, you know, I got my Ancestry.com results back and, you know, I, I, it turns out I have Irish blood uh, as if somehow, you know, there was a fluid that ha had a nationality stamped on it. Um, and, and, you know, so we, we look to these, uh, these percentages of, of Ancestry, if you ever get your DNA done with 23andMe or whatever, um, as some sort of um, absolute measurement of of our past and, and how our past makes us who we are. And the fact is that, um, you know, DNA just doesn't work that way. You know, the DNA that each of us carries in us is really kind of a chopped up sampling of our ancestors. And the fact is that, you know, the further back you go in time, you, you meet up with direct ancestors of yours from whom you inherit no DNA at all. So you actually have this, this absolute genealogical connection to uh, your ancestors with no genetic connection. Um, and, you know, if we just say like, oh, well, you know, uh, 
genes equals ancestry, uh, then the whole idea starts to fall apart. Uh, and, you know, likewise, you know, we, we search in our ancestry, we look at our DNA to, to say like, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I descend from someone famous and that will make me special. Um, and uh, that uh, is <laughs> not as impressive as it might seem because uh, sure, you, you know, uh, you may descend from Cleopatra, but probably so do all of us um, because uh, it just turns out that the further back in time you go, um, people who have living descendants ha are actually related to everybody on earth. Uh, you just need to go back a few thousand years and you, in, they, our family trees all intersect. So there's a lot that we demand from our DNA these days that it just can't give us. Um, you know, if we're, we're looking to understand what we are and how, what we inherited from the past, um, these genetic tests are gonna let us down. Well, it's good talking to an old relative like you, Carl. I mean, it's been a few thousand years since we can probably find a common ancestor, but it's always good to catch up. Uh, but that also opens up the world of weirder arenas because as you alluded to that we have ancestors that we have very little genetic information on but that's sort of the the kind of the fun parts of heredity is that uh, relation and genetics aren't aren't the same but i like i want to delve into some of the weirder areas that oftentimes get overlooked in this area can we talk about chimeras a little bit sure sure yeah i you know part of uh, the way that we think about heredity is that um, you know, we inherit DNA from our mother and we inherit DNA from our father. And th those two sets of DNA get combined in a single cell. And that cell then divides and produces a person. And so all the cells, the, the trillions of cells in that person uh, are all carrying that identical genome. Uh, and, and really that's our, our ultimate sense of identity. Um, it, it's who we are. You know, if, if you, if you, uh, if you, if you commit a crime and, and leave some DNA behind at the scene of the crime, um, that DNA will lead police back to you because it's, it's, it's your calling card. But what if you were actually a combination of DNA from two cells starting out? Um, and if you had two genomes inside of you, um, and that sounds crazy and fanciful, but um, it, it actually is quite common. Uh, and what it is is called chimerism, that people are chimeras, which is named after the uh, Greek mythical beast with, you know, the head of a goat and of a lion and a snake. There are ways for cells from, from different individuals to combine and to produce uh a single person. And uh, if you uh, were to trace the, the ancestry of the genes in part of a chimera, it would go to, uh, it would take one path uh, back through ancestry. And if you took a look at the other cells, they would go back through another path. Um, and uh, it turns out that, you know, uh, uh, women, uh, can become chimeras because uh, you know DNA from their children actually gets absorbed into their bodies and starts to replicate inside them. There are cases where 
people actually started out as twins, but uh, the cells of that twin simply got absorbed into their body uh, and um, fused into them. And, and then you have this mishmash of, of cells from different people. Uh, and this can actually become a real problem if, um, you know, sometimes people have actually been, it's been claimed that, you know, mothers are not the mothers of their own children because their DNA doesn't seem to match. Um, and so, uh, so these chimeras walk among us. You might be a chimera. I might be one. I haven't been tested for it, but uh, it's an incredibly common thing, it turns out. How do we know how common it is? Is it from just sampling over over time? Well, it it's not easy um, because uh, it, it takes a lot of work and you have to be motivated to look for the evidence. Um, so people may, for example, um, have uh, cells from one ancestor that make up their blood and they may have cells from another ancestor that make up um, all the rest of their body or even their blood might be a mixture of, of different genomes in the cells. Uh, it all depends on exactly when those cells of different origins got combined. And so, you know, there, there have been studies where, for example, uh, scientists have said, okay, we know that pregnancy is a very common way for chimeras to form because cells from um, these fetuses get absorbed into women's bodies and then they just integrate themselves into their bodies. So how often does it happen? Well, you know, it's it's not easy. And, and sometimes what scientists have done is they have uh, done autopsies. And so they've you know opened up, for example, the brains of women who have died. And the easiest way to determine if a woman is a chimera is to look for Y chromosomes in some of her cells. And so you can actually see uh, in a substantial number of women who, who have had children that uh, they may have neurons in their brain with Y chromosomes. Uh, and you don't know that until you go to this incredible lengths of actually arranging to, to autopsy dozens of women to do a kind of a survey like this. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really hard work and, and hopefully it's going, as people appreciate just how common chimeras are, maybe we'll get more systematic about it and we'll really discover just how widespread it is and we can give a really hard number to it. But for now, we're pretty sure that it's, it's remarkably common. It used to be thought of just as an incredibly rare freak of nature, but now we know that actually a substantial number of people are chimeras. And that's part of what this book relates is that basic biology class that we all probably went through that talked about, you know, uh, Mendel and, and thinking about uh, heredity in that context. The science as, as it stands now of heredity is much more complicated than what we probably learned in school. Sure. I mean, you, you got to start with Mendel. I mean, that's where genetics uh, got its start in a, in a big way. But if we want to understand what we inherit from our parents, um, you, you got to go beyond those simple pea plant experiments. You know, like just to give a, a simple example, a seemingly simple example I talk about in the book, you know, tall parents tend to have 
uh, tall children and short parents tend to have short children. I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule. There's a lot of variation, but it, you can see a correlation there. So why is that? Well, it's not because, um, you know, you, your mother has a quote unquote tall gene and passed down that quote unquote tall gene to you and then you became immediately tall. In fact, there are lots and lots of genes that influence height in ways that we just don't even understand yet. And, and it, it takes a long time to, to really pinpoint each of the genes that plays a role in height because each one has an incredibly subtle influence, you know, a tiny fraction of an inch, depending on which variant of the gene you have. And so far, scientists have found about a thousand of these genes. Um, and yet there are other scientists who say, you know, um, when we look forward, we predict that there might be maybe a million spots in your DNA where there is an influence on how tall you're going to end up. And then all of that um, is also subject to how you grow up, um, you know, what, what kind of food you eat and, and all sorts of other uh, factors. So Mendel is a, is a good place to, to start, but we know now, thanks to all these advances, DNA sequencing and studying it, that uh, the true picture is 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 a lot more complicated and also counterintuitive. It, 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 we, we have these assumptions about heredity works and we're just discovering that that's just not the case. And your book is as much about history as it is the science. And as you mentioned, like the selecting for more tall individuals, it, it reminds me of a, a story in the book where you discuss the story of Emma Wolverton, kind of a, a, a historical name that has been forgotten in a tale of of how humanity can use and abuse this science. Can you talk about Emma? Sure. So Emma Wolverton uh, was a, uh, a woman who lived uh, in New Jersey from the late 1800s until the late 1900s. And uh, she was the victim of uh, very destructive ideas about heredity. So she was institutionalized at a young age, and she was described as feeble-minded. And that was a very standard uh, uh, label that was put on people at the time. And it, it, it can translate to a lot of different things that we uh, talk about today. It can be anything from somewhat Down syndrome to uh, just somebody who uh, uh, is just not socially well adjusted. Uh, and it just, it covered a huge range of, of people who just didn't seem to be uh, capable of functioning in society. And in Emma Wolverton's case, um, that was because um, she just uh, was in a, in a poor family where basically her, her mother wanted to get rid of her. Um, and so that she could marry uh, uh, another man other than her father. So she was put in this institution and there she became the subject of a study by a psychologist named Henry Goddard. Um, Henry Goddard was struggling for a way to actually measure feeble-mindedness, to be able to understand why, uh, why it is that some people had difficulties learning and, and others didn't as children. And in Europe, he discovered intelligence testing, the, the, the early kinds of intelligence testing, um, and brought them back to New Jersey. 
and tested out it on people like Emma Wolverton, these children at, at his school, and decided that it worked great and that he could actually uh, come up with a number to, to uh, rate these, these children. Um, this would actually go on to become the, sort of the IQ test that we're all familiar with now. And Henry Goddard was the person who introduced it to the United States. But he had um, a, a, a much bigger mission that, that he was using it for. Uh, and so this is why you can't really separate sort of the quote-unquote pure science from, from the, the history and the social factors that swirl around it. They're all intertwined. Um, so what he wanted, he was convinced that feeble-mindedness was hereditary, um, that it might even be just one gene that you inherited to make you feeble-minded. And he set out uh, to prove this by going into Emma Wolverton's genealogy and gathering evidence that he claimed showed that her whole family had been feeble-minded and that you could actually, it was as clear-cut as, you know, Mendel's P experiments. And what that meant, if that were true, was that there was really no good that you could do for someone like Emma Wolverton. All you, you could do for the good of society was to keep her from having children. And that might mean institutionalizing her. In her case, she stayed in institutions for the rest of her life. Or sterilization, or even worse. And he wrote a book about Emma Wolverton, uh, changed her name, called her Deborah Kalakak. And the book was called The Kalakak Family and became incredibly uh, influential in the United States and abroad. Um, Hitler read about it. Um, it came to influence Nazi ideology very strongly. And uh, and the whole thing was just, uh, when we look back at it now, it was just based on the most incredibly shoddy evidence. Um, but it was just, it, at the time, it was a story that just was too good not to believe. And it not only built on shoddy evidence, like a profound misunderstanding or, or a simple understanding of how heredity works, and um, I, I just want to note the NIH main, has maintained a, a few manuscripts um, around this. And you actually can see pictures of Emma Wolverton. I, I recommend um, this one by uh, Mike Weimeyer that has historical pictures of her. And it ends with a, a, a thought. Her name was Emma, not Deborah. We cannot undo the justices, injustices done to her or others, but we at least owe her the respect of calling her by her name. And I think that point illustrates of how abused hereditary science has been over the years and why we as a society need to keep close tabs on how um, heredity science is being used in modern contexts. And sort of moving us forward, we're at a situation where, you know, on this program, in, in your columns, in basically all of science, we we've talked about moves by by groups to really change the way our environment works. CRISPR has become a term that seems to be more and more common. It's heck, it's in a a movie featuring the rock this uh, that just came out a, a, a few weeks ago. So the idea of actually using science to edit, uh, edit not only um, our own personal genetics, but actually have those effects linger um, and and pass down through heredity is one that we need to start grappling with. And and you illustrate a few examples of that, including one with Anthony James, who was previously on this show a, a couple of years ago about using gene drives in mosquitoes. That's right. So 
these advances uh, like CRISPR uh, are actually um, letting us do some astonishing things uh, and, and could let us do even more astonishing things. Um, and, and so you mentioned gene drive and basically the idea here is that um, you, what you wanna do is you wanna override Mendel's laws. So I mean, the, the classic pea plant experiment um, is that, you know, let's say you have a, a wrinkled uh, pea. Um, uh, and th what that means is that uh, that pea has two copies of a particular gene that make it wrinkled instead of smooth. Uh, and if you have a smooth pea, it could be just have the two smooth factors or it could be a smooth and a, and a rough one um, because the smooth is what they call dominant. And so there's a 50-50 chance of either copy of that gene getting passed down from that pea plant to its descendant. That 50-50 rule is, is just, you just can't get around it. I mean, for plants and animals, that is pretty much almost like a law, but it's not a law. That's the, that's the crazy thing about it is that there are ways to actually override it. Um, and sometimes this happens in nature, but now scientists are trying to do it artificially. And so what this could mean potentially is that you could engineer one mosquito, for example, that was, let's say, immune to malaria um, because it had a copy of an engineered gene. And then you could just uh, put it out there. And when it mated, it's all its offspring would inherit um, its that that copy of that of that gene, and then it would actually they would actually end up with two copies because they could engineer themselves, which is kind of crazy sounding, but that's seems to be what the experiments show can happen. So basically, you could go very quickly from mosquitoes that can all carry malaria within you know relatively few generations to mosquitoes that across the population are entirely resistant to malaria. That, that would be, that could be potentially just revolutionary. Whether it actually works as, as well as it, people hopes, we, we won't know uh, until someone actually runs the ultimate experiment and sets these things loose. For now, they are still, you know, growing inside of labs, but in those labs, they seem to be, you know, breaking Mendel's law left and right. And what was your reaction when you were in Anthony's insectarium, I think, as the lab was called, seeing all of this happen? Because it's both an incredibly interesting, active experiment, but at the same time, it's hard not to have the ethics of all of this be grappled with in real time while you're there. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of spooky because um, there's this whole life cycle going on all around you of these mosquitoes from larvae that are sort of squirming around like little worms in, in uh, tubs of water uh, to these adults. And then they're feeding on blood, the females, and then uh, mating and laying eggs and the whole thing's going around and around and around. And they've all... Uh, been genetically engineered in this really extreme way so that, you know, the, the way heredity works in that lab is very different than it does outside that lab. And you think, wow, I really, <laughs> I, I, I really hope that, you know, none of these mosquitoes are, are can slip out. Um, you know, they admit now, I should say they've taken lots of precautions that that won't happen. And you've, even if it does, the species of mosquito they study in Southern California 
uh, is actually from India. And if it got out into that California sunshine, it would die. So there are a lot of safety measures in place, but still you think, you know, once we set these gene drive animals loose, um, it's it's likely we'll never be able to to bring them back in. Um, and so if, it, you know, it's really, we, we, I think it's a very valuable um, project to try to eliminate malaria. I mean, I just, I, I think that we ought to be trying uh, innovative ways of trying to stop it. And, you know, all the ways up so far have only managed to reduce it modestly. This could potentially completely break the disease chain. And, and it's worth trying, but, but it does raise an ethical question of when do we know that it's really, you know, uh, ready to, to be released. But that story in microcosm is what I, I think comes up when you read your book, which is the language that we use around heredity needs to change. It almost needs to be updated, both like referencing past stories of, of abuse and, and misuse, but also putting this in a modern context, because this idea of hereditary science is much more complicated, but it interconnects with lots of different areas that society is grappling with. So I'm wondering, to, to wrap up, where do you think the conversation around heredity needs to go? Because with all of these specific issues, you can go on a deep dive with them, and that's not something that society is good at doing. But it seems like you're making a larger point here that there is a conversation we need to be having. We definitely need to be having a conversation. And part of it is is how we want to use these new technologies to affect heredity in the future. Uh, and that might involve how we steer our own heredity. Um, that That's maybe the most controversial uh, issue these days um, is should we use technologies like CRISPR to alter human embryos uh, in ways that they can then pass down to their descendants. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, a really important thing to do is, is to take a deep breath and really understand what it is that we're contemplating. You know, you, you mentioned this, this movie Rampage with, with The Rock, which is a, which is a very fun movie as, as, far as I've heard from the reviews, but, um, you know, it's not like you can take CRISPR and turn somebody into a hundred foot tall monster. That's just not how it works. You know, what people are talking about in terms of CRISPR realistically is trying to, uh, deal with certain hereditary diseases. Uh, and you know, like, uh, how do we feel about that, about those diseases being reduced to future generations? And, you know, honestly, like, if if uh, just thousands of people are doing it in the future, will that really affect the human gene pool? Not if there are billions of people on Earth. It, it, so you know we we need to look focus more on like what is the ethical duty we owe to uh, the the children who would be affected by these changes, um, not to these sort of um, hysterical reactions about oh heredity with a capital H is going to be changed forever. Um, that that's a misunderstanding of heredity, and honestly, even even if we don't do that, I think we still need to to have a deeper understanding of heredity because uh, you know millions of people are are getting ancestry testing, 
they're looking at their genes and they're trying to figure out how the past made them who they are. Um, and the connection between the past and the present is is really complicated and and not going to fit our, our intuitions, really. So, you know, just as we need to think about the future of heredity, we also need to think in a new way about the past. Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for joining us again on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. I always love listening to Carl. And, you know, he's so knowledgeable on this topic. He's really been studying it from various perspectives over the last couple of decades. And it kind of reminded me of a sort of discussion that I recently had on Facebook with a bunch of other psychologists about mindsets, which are sort of beliefs about ability. Uh, and there was this paper that came out recently that showed, or at least I guess I, a meta-analysis uh, of a bunch of papers that tried to make the case that interventions to change mindsets really weren't that effective, especially in adults. Uh, and so there was this this kind of discussion about whether the mindset, you're born with a certain mindset, whether it's innate, um, which of course, to me, doesn't make any kind of sense at all, since, you know, that's something that I feel like you very much have to learn. But it doesn't mean that it isn't hereditary in the sense, right? Like you're going to take up a mindset uh, that, that your parents kind of instill in you or, or that, that they have, you know, their beliefs. And there, there are a lot of these kinds of traits that become very much a part of our personality uh, that seem immutable and yet are something that we kind of picked up uh, after we were born. Yeah. And I think what you're poking at is that genetics will never tell the whole story. And I, I think most scientists are, totally agree with that sentiment, that even though we are pursuing genetic answers to all of these um, particular diseases and uh, understanding like really basic information on who we are, the science and the history says that that will never give us a complete picture because we're, you know, mutated, weird kind of constructs. Uh, that aren't perfectly built from the Legos that we are given via the chromosomes from uh, from our parents. So there's this strange way that Carl paints this picture of, yes, there are some questions that we can answer by looking at our family history that genetics alone can't answer for us. And I found that, um, I, I find his, his case compelling, but I also found it just a, a a strange argument in these times when we're so focused on the gene, it feels like. And without getting into that whole nature versus nurture argument, and I don't think that's where Carl was going. Do you feel like there's too much emphasis placed on the gene technologies, even though they're inexplicably tied here to the case that Carl is making? Yeah, because I think that ultimately the effects of genes express themselves over time. And you can't, you know, there are so many different variables that come into play when you start to add time as a variable. So, you know, I think that it's really hard. I mean, I, I even think like if you took two identical embryos and you raise them in, you know, sort of very similar circumstances, but one was in the 50s and one was in the 80s, you know, you're still going to come out with very different adults. And so I think sometimes we just kind of underestimate the effect that the interaction with time has on the way that uh, our genetics end up affecting us. At the end of the day, the part that's really going to stick with me is the story of Emma Wolverton, because it's the cautionary tale of how we have abused genetics. And it's not just, it's not just what's happened in Nazi Germany or going back 
uh, centuries. It's something that's happened just like 60, 70 years ago that's part of our um, American history, uh, about Western history of science. And we need to, as we're thinking about the future of these technologies, grapple with how we have manipulated these genes, the, the, uh, the essential building blocks of who we are in nefarious ways. And I think that ethical conversation that uh, Carl kind of brought to the fore, that's one that I think is, is really the important place for the conversation to reside. Because the science is going to move forward in the way that science does. But how it's utilized, that's a conversation that all of us belong in. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Eric Huddleston, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And for five bucks a month, you get an ad-free version of every one of our shows. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chia. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geech. See you next week. We got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.